My name is Richard Morales, and I want to welcome you to The Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspectives of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Welcome to The Prison Post. My name is Richard Morales, and this is my co-host, Jason Bryant. Hello, everyone. We want to welcome Tyena Edmund Vargas to the Prison Post this week. She's the co-founder and executive director from Initiate Justice. Good afternoon, Tyena. Good afternoon, Rich and Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, for being sure. here. Yeah. I just want to share a little bit about um, your background before we get started. Uh, you founded Initiate Justice in September of 2016 with the intention of activating the political power of people directly impacted by mass incarceration. Prior to creating okay. Initiate Justice, uh, you worked in organizing and policy advocacy field in the uh, organizing and policy advocacy field as a statewide advocacy coordinator with the SE Justice Group, a state campaigner with Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, and as a field representative for the California State Assembly. Um, you were de- directly impacted by mass incarceration by having a loved one who was incarcerated for over seven years. So you're exactly the type of person that we want to be interviewing on the prison post is working hard to restore lives. I mean, I look at you as a leader, somebody that I admire. Uh, so many of my friends at the crop organization, we, we, we respect you and admire you, the work that you do. And um, it's been great working with you over the last year. Maybe we could talk about that in a few minutes, but um, so welcome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So first of all, I want to start off by saying that um, I follow you on Instagram, <laughs> but it's not uh it's not as the advocacy, um, not only as the advocacy uh, uh, leader in the prison reform movement, but uh, at Cupcakes of Color. Cupcakes of Color. <laughs> Cupcakes of Color. Cupcakes dot of dot color. Yes. And uh, so when I look at your pictures on Cupcakes of Color, I see like these beautiful cupcakes and it looks so cathartic and therapeutic and I'm just curious of, uh, is that um, a side thing that you do to relieve the stress or what's going on there? Absolutely. That's so funny. I had no idea this is where we were starting, but I am happy to talk about <laughs> baking. Anybody who knows me, once you get me started, it might be hard to stop. So y'all will have to um, be oh, good yeah. hope. <laughs> no, but it, it's true. There's actually a lot of studies that show that um, baking is a, a meditative practice. Um, and it's something that I enjoy very much. I feel like it's very good for my you know, mental and emotional well-being. Um, you know, doing this work, like both being directly impacted by mass incarceration and then, you know, constantly in the, the thick of the organizing work to to end it, um, it can be very stressful. It can, mm. you know, hurt in very personal ways often. So, um, you know, baking is something that I do to try and relieve the stress. And I also encourage everybody who's in this work to find something that makes you happy and incorporate it into your life. Well, my question for you is, do you need any taste testers or samplers of... <laughs> Of your cupcakes? Because I was looking at them as well and they're delicious. They look delicious. The problem is I'm in LA and (laughs) y'all are in Sacramento and I don't think they would ship well. Okay. Kind of like once you make it, you got to eat it type thing. It's that kind of thing. But you know, if y'all are ever in the area, feel free to hit me up. Sounds great. Well, pre-COVID, she was out here at least once a month. So (laughs) we may have to make an order eventually. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's pretty cool. Is that where the magic happens back there in the background? Uh, the initiate justice colored wall back there. Right. You know, this, this is my, my dining room and kitchen behind me. So correct. Um, this is where the, the cupcake magic happens. That's right. all right. 
All right. Awesome. That's really cool to have something uh, therapeutic that you're passionate about uh, to, to relieve the stress. Yeah. Because uh, this, this is tough work, and uh, you're one of the leaders of it. And I, I, I want to express gratitude on behalf of myself, Jason Crop, and the other brothers and sisters who are incarcerated. I remember when um, Prop 57, you were working hard on Prop 57, the early days of Initiate Justice, and organizing and picking up people to go to the Capitol to go and speak to different senators and assembly persons. And it had not had Prop 57 not passed. My earliest release date for going to the board was December of 2021. Mm-hmm. But I, instead of having to go after 21 years, I was able to get to the board because of Prop 57 and after 19 years and three months. And I know that you had played a major part in that for me and for other people that I know that were sentenced to life terms. So I just wanted to say thank you, Taina. Of course. I feel like it's our duty, you know. And as you you know mentioned earlier, I also had a loved one inside who was able to earn al- almost two years off of his sentence due to Prop 57. So it was it was deeply personal to me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What about um, your upbringing? Um, did you grow up in California or what was what was how did the traje- trajectory of your life lead you to uh, becoming a part of this work? Yeah, so I'm born and raised here in, in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, to be exact. Um, shout out to everybody from the Valley. Um, but I, you know, was directly impacted by the government's policies of, um, you know, divesting from community-based services and investing in the prison industrial complex. Um, both of my parents had drug and alcohol addiction issues. We suffered from poverty and spent many of my years of my childhood homeless, actually. Mm. Um, my dad was incarcerated when I was 14 and, you know, my mom was still struggling with addiction issues. So I ended up starting to work, um, so that I could, you know, help pay for, um, our rent and bills and, you know, school supplies for my siblings. Um, and I, I learned at a very young age that the system that we have is not working. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my family was in crisis moving through poverty and addiction and violence and trauma. Um, but we didn't have any resources offered to us. You know, um, something that I think about often is, Um, My dad went to jail, as I said, when I was 14, and I just sank into a really deep depression. Our family was living in motels at the time. I just didn't know what to do. So I ended up um, ditching school. Most of my ninth grade year, I didn't even go to school, failed most of my classes. And not once did a teacher or a school counselor or anybody intervene to ask me, you know, what was wrong? What was going on? The first intervention that I had was from the police. Um, One day when I actually got late to school. It was one day that I was not ditching, um, but I got there late um, and the police stopped me and they gave me a ticket for truancy. And this is something that, you know, was a a common practice at the time, Mm -hmm. um, something that was famously championed by um, then San Francisco District Attorney Kamala Harris. Um, And, you know, that had a material impact on my life. So I think, um, you know, at that time, like that was a a lesson for me that the only time, um, you know, me personally or my family was going to receive any intervention was through the police. Um, And then after my dad got out of jail, he ended up going to rehab and that was how he got sober. But he had to go to jail first. He had to spend 10 months incarcerated in county jail, unable to support his family before he was offered any rehabilitative services. Um, 
So growing up, I feel like that was a, a lesson that was ingrained in me that something needed to change within our system where we needed to offer people the support and the resources that they actually need. Um, because, you know, the unfortunate truth in most of our communities, the, the first and last resource is just the police, prison and jail. Yeah, I also grew up in um, some, something similar, a similar environment. And I don't remember there ever being resources as well for any of those things um, throughout school, junior high, high school. Um, the closest thing I remember in the 80s is like the Say, to, say No to Drugs campaign. But um, <laughs> what about you, Jason? Uh, I rem- you're not too far away from the valley there. Uh, well, yeah, I was I was born in Tarzana and raised. Oh, that's where I live now. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's indeed a small world. <laughs> and I was actually raised in Palmdale, um, a little town outside of Palmdale called Acton, actually. And, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot of diversity, ethnic diversity in Acton. It was, you know, primarily white. And uh, I, I don't remember there being those type of services. There, but there also weren't those type of issues. A lot of the issues with substance abuse, they weren't going on in the small town, which I was raised in. Um, that being said, um, I definitely, once I, my, my freshman year of high school, I went to a Palmdale, Palmdale High, and uh, there was a, a significant shift. There was a, a lot more diversity in the, the ethnic uh, composition of the school, and that's when I first had my first, uh, like, real exposure to people that struggled with addiction, and, you know, just to, to uh, you know, validate the point that Taina made, there wasn't, like, counselors running around trying to, to help these people, these young people or the, the older people. Um, it was like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do. And when you um, get caught for doing something wrong, you're going to be incarcerated. You know, you're going to suffer the consequence. So I did witness yeah. that. Exactly. I think part of, um, part of the inspiration behind the Prison Post and even the crop organization that sponsors the Prison Post is being somebody who's proactive, being somebody who's willing to get in the fight. You know, that, that's that's – don't just complain about it. You know, notice the problem, see the problem, find a solution. What's the solution? And ever since I've known you, I've always seen like, hey, that you organize people to advocate for what's right, for what's just, what's good. Um, is that around the time? Was it around high school when you started becoming passionate in that way? No, actually, you know, going through most of, of high school and even um, undergrad and college, I thought that the best way that I could change things was more from like a top-down approach. So I actually went to school um, for political science and uh, I went to graduate school for diplomacy and international relations. And I just thought, okay, I'll be a, a policy person and, you know, just change laws from the top down. And, you know, that's how we'll accomplish the, the social justice, you know, goals that I was looking for. Um, but it wasn't until I was, 23, when my loved one went to prison, that um, I kind of like reshift, I had to shift my perspective. And um, I still believed that we needed laws that needed to be changed, but laws were not going to change just by having, you know, one or two elected officials or decision makers at the top calling those shots. What we actually needed to do is build people power and, you know, it, develop and invest in the skills of people who are directly impacted by an issue to shift policy. Um, you know, as you had mentioned in my bio, I had also worked for the legislature for a period of time. And, you know, that was something that I also learned in that experience is that it's often the people with the most privilege or, you know, resources 
who have the most influence, um, but they're not the people who have the most experience when it comes to ending mass incarceration. Mm. So I decided to create Initiate Justice as a way of building that bridge between impacted people who are the experts of our own experiences um, but systemically are kept out of the political process um, and offering like those skills and that information so that we can be seen as the leaders that we truly are. What, what do you think, Taina, is the reason that people who are impacted by the system are kept out of participation in it? For any system of oppression to exist, it has to make the people who are oppressed feel like they're powerless. Um, because, you know, we have strength in numbers. There's, you know, about 100,000 people in California state prisons, which incidentally is the lowest number in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there are about 80,000 people incarcerated in county jails. And if you multiply that by their family members, close friends, loved ones, there are millions and millions of people in California who are directly impacted by mass incarceration one way or the other. Um and the system has to make us feel like we don't have a voice in order for it to continue to exist. If all of those millions of people, you know, had the skills and the resources and the influence that some of the people at the top do, then the prison walls would come crumbling down in a second. What do you think the motivation of those people at the top is? Because they don't want to lose their power. You know, there's um, there's a lot of power and money to be made in the mass incarceration system. Um, And I know folks will often talk about the financial aspects, um, but I like to focus more on the power that is held at at the top. This system exists because folks are able to sell fear and say that, you know, people in prison are dangerous and violent and scary. Mm -hmm. And by capitalizing on that fear, they're able to create entire systems of control where you have legislators and voters who are willing to put policies in place that will lock people away for a long period of time just because they're scared um, without thinking about the material impacts that that's having on families and communities and on public safety. Sure. You know, we've, we're, you know, close to 30 years into this tough on crime um, period now. And it's very clear that harsher punishment does not make us safer. It actually makes us less safe. Um, but, you know, the powers that be, I think, like to be able to be in control of, of the narrative. And, you know, until we can like take that narrative back and uplift the stories of, you know, folks like you, who were incarcerated for, you know, a a long period of time, folks who we've been conditioned to be afraid of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, folks like, like me who were, you know, um, seen as, I don't know, like foolish or, you know, um, uneducated because we support people who are in prison. Um, I think it's really important for us to continue to do the work to debunk those myths. Taina, everything that you're sharing has led to, what what you've mentioned already in, in this in this conversation is called mass incarceration. I know that your mission, part of your mission with Initiate Justice is to end mass incarceration. You know, I was having a conversation about this with a loved one just yesterday on the phone and they didn't even know what mass incarceration was. And part of our listeners are our loved ones of the incarcerated family members, friends and those who are interested in in this in this arena of getting involved and making a difference. So what is mass incarceration and, and how do you activate the political power of, of the people that it directly impacts? 
Um, thanks for that question. Mass incarceration is, um, you know, it's an entire system of, you know, policies and um, practices and funding streams that are in place that lock up a mass amount of people for the intention of maintaining the system of punishment and control. Um, the prison system is supposed to exist to keep communities safe. However, the United States has the highest incarceration rates in the world and also has some of the highest rates of, um, you know, violent crime in the world. Um, our prison population has skyrocketed over the last 30 years, and that has not been in a response to um, threats to public safety. That has been in response to, you know, criminalizing black and brown folks, um, criminalizing drug use and, um, you know, with the intention of, of making money and maintaining control over mass amounts of people. Um, so when I say we activate the political power of impacted people, that means that we organize people who are in prison, formerly incarcerated people and their loved ones to fight for laws that will bring people home from prison and will also create restorative justice alternatives that actually focus on keeping communities safe, repairing harm once it is caused, but first and foremost, ensuring um, that we have resources and social services in our communities so that we can care for people in the first place so they don't end up causing harm that might end up um, leading them to prison. What are your thoughts about violent crime? <laughs> Um, I think that all of us want to be safe, right? I'll speak in particular as a woman who on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, faces sexual harassment and catcalling and, you know, all the things. Um, so I think there's this idea that those of us who are um, prison abolitionists, um, I am an, an abolitionist, which means that I believe in completely dismantling the existing punishment system that we have and replacing it with something that truly keeps us safe and invests in communities. Um, but when I think about violent crime, I think that the system that we have now is not doing a good job of preventing it. I do not feel safe because I know we have mandatory minimums or three strikes law or death penalty. I would feel safer if I knew that people who have faced violence as children um, are getting access to therapy and trauma-informed care so that they don't end up committing violence when they get older. I would like to think that Children who, you know, similarly children who are, are victims of sexual assault are also getting care that they need so they don't end up um, perpetuating sexual assault mm. when they get older. I would like to think that we have a universal basic income so that people don't have to resort to robbery and things like that. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the question of, well, what do you think about violent crime or, you know, what do we do with people who commit violence? Um, I think we're kind of missing the mark because mm -hmm. um, the system itself is violent sure. and is creating violence and is perpetuating violence. So I think that, you know, the first step is to alter our system so that we can create a safer environment and then put in place um, transformative and restorative you know, mechanisms of holding people accountable when they do still cause harm. Because regardless, you know, it's a fact that we have to face that even if we did abolish prisons and had a completely different system in place, there are still outliers. There are still people who will cause harm. Sure. And we can find ways of, you know, keeping the community safe without resorting to this, you know, 
um, intricate web of punishment that mm-hmm. wraps so many people up in it. Do you, do you think that, and I asked this question because I, I was uh, watching something, I think it was TikTok. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the points that was made by someone on the kind of the other side of the aisle was that culture has something to do with it as well. Do you, do you agree with that or do you disagree that there's something with inner city culture that kind of promotes violence in some ways and perhaps crime as in general? I think that that's a racist assessment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that American culture, period, promotes violence. We mm-hmm. have the largest military in the world. Sure. So, you know, how are we going to say that... Um, quote unquote, inner city, which let's be real, that's like a, you know, a a tag word. They mean black and brown communities, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, say that our communities promote violence when our communities have not been invested in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most of us are here because our ancestors are slave, you know, we're enslaved and we're literally kidnapped and we're not given, you know, wealth or opportunities. Um, So, you know, we are doing our best to deal with the hand that we were given Mm -hmm. in the context of an incredibly violent culture. So if we respond with, you know, our best survival mechanisms, Mm -hmm. I think that that's what what any community would do, you know. Um, But why aren't we talking about violence? Um, You know, we don't talk about mass shootings in the same way that for the most part are, you know, committed by white men. Um, we don't talk about um, white on white crime when all of the statistics show that violence is mostly going to happen within communities. So if it's a black community, a Latinx community, an indigenous community, a white community, um, it's going most likely going to be amongst people that you know. Sure. But we only hear about black on black crime in, in the news. So um, yeah, I think that I would just want to highlight um, some of the, the racist intentions around that kind of coded language. Tanya, I appreciate you you sharing with this and unpacking uh, what abolitionism is. There's there's people that we've talked to, been in conversations with, and they think it means and that oh, just close all prisons right now and release everybody. And um, so you know, um, you've already unpacked some of some of what it what it really means. But what would be some type of five year plan or twenty year plan uh, so that this idea of of ending prisons isn't some just some utopian thought? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So um, Initiate Justice is actually going to be launching a report in January 2021 um, outlining some of the first steps that we think are are really important towards achieving prison abolition. Um, But some things that I'll I'll list now is, you know, I'll I'll talk about Prop 57 as an example. Um, I see something like Prop 57 as an abolitionist reform um, because what it ultimately does is it does help, you know, get people out of prison by incentivizing positive behavior that's going to lower recidivism and help keep people out and help them be positive members of society, you know, by offering a credit earning system um, for completing educational and rehabilitative programs um, is, you know, like a really important first step that, you know, the state took to reduce the population while improving public safety. Um, But a few other things that I think are, are really important are, One, we need to end extreme sentencing. It's just a fact that people are in prison for far too long. Mm. We have, um, you know, mandatory sentences and enhancements such as the three strikes law, the death penalty, life without the possibility of parole, people who have received multiple life sentences for 
you know, things that are also relatively small, but we just have so much, I don't know, for lack of a better word, junk that needs to be cleaned up in our penal code that it's really, you know, far too easy to receive an extreme sentence in California. Um, The second thing that I think we need to do, and this is kind of tied in with the the Prop 57 piece, is increase access to programs and credits. So for the folks who are inside right now, our system needs to do a much better job of equipping people with the the tools and the skills that they need to be able to reenter society successfully. Um, But that doesn't, you know, just mean job training or education. That also means, you know, trauma therapy. Um, you know, folks inside are going to need a lot of support transitioning back to the outside. Um, And that brings me to the the third thing that I think we really need to focus on, which is um, improving access between incarcerated people and their loved ones on the outside. Um, All of the research shows that folks inside, you know, program better when they have people on the outside who care about them. They're less likely to be involved in, you know, anything dangerous while they're inside. And then they also re-enter society more successfully when they have a family and a community who cares for them. Um, And the prison system does everything within its power to keep families apart. Um, So, you know, there are many things that I think need to happen over the next five, 10 years, but the three major things um, that I would highlight are ending extreme sentencing, um, increasing access to program and credits and improving um, connections between incarcerated people and their loved ones. Thank you for sharing that. I remember being in the visiting room and them um, getting on me for hugging my mom for more than 10 seconds. And right. I was like, this is my mom. I mean, look at the paperwork. Uh, what, what is the harm in hugging my mom? Well, you get one hug at the beginning and one hug at the end. And right. uh, it seems that their whole perspective is skewed is skewed in that way. You know, me and me and Jay here, Jason here, we have a, uh, 41 years in between us. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I, that I know about initiate justice that I don't think any other nonprofit organization is doing is, is like you said, activating the power of the people that are on the inside as well. We were a part of the inside organizing team. Some of the, in some of the early teams inside Soledad, I remember going to night yard. Um, Jason actually was the, the lead, the yeah. lead inside organizer. I was the lead organizer for, <laughs> for, for a little while. Yes. Uh, and I remember going to night yard sometimes and it'd mm-hmm. be raining. And a lot of guys in, in prison don't like going out in the rain. But I remember we were out there sometimes eight of us or seven of us or 15 of us. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about policy. And, and I don't know of anybody else. See, guys on the inside, uh, I, I remember saying, well, what they ought to do this. And they ought to do this law and, and, and create this so that we could have this access or have this program so we could get out sooner or incentivize prison. But we never heard of any organizations reaching into the inside and saying, what do you guys want? Right. What what would what would you what do you guys see that would improve Mm -hmm. the system or how could what are your guys thoughts on mandatory minimums? But initiate justice did that. I know that today you have what twenty eight thousand. I looked at the website this morning, twenty eight thousand four hundred and seventy five members of initiate justice on the inside. One hundred and thirty five inside organizers of what what Jason was rallying, sure. rallying the, the guys together to come and get ideas. So first of all, I want to say thank you for letting us have a voice on what we believe is, is, is best to, to reform uh, the prison system that's so broken in mass incarceration. And second, how did you get that idea to, to uh, care about our voices from the inside? Yeah, well, thanks for that. And, you know, shout out to the both of you for, you know, being some of our first inside organizers and, and members. And that, that was where it all started um, with just a, a couple of folks at, at Soledad State Prison who, you know, got organized and believed in the mission. Um, but, uh, you know, as I had mentioned, I do have, 
you know, my experiences with the prison system and my loved one has his experiences with the prison system. But I also recognize that, you know, my experience was not everyone else's experience. And um, my loved one's sentence and his experience was not the same as, as everybody else's. Um, so for me, it felt very important to reach as many people in prison as possible, um, understanding that incarcerated people are the experts of their own experiences and, you know, tapping in and, and asking those types of questions. And I learned so much. There's so many things that I would never have thought of um, just by, you know, hearing people's stories and hearing what kind of sentences they received and how they've been treated since they've been inside and, you know, different laws that had impacted them um, and, you know, the issues that were a priority for them. Um, it doesn't seem authentic to, you know, claim to be an organization working to end mass incarceration if you're not um, directly tapping in with the people most intimately affected by it. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll hear things where, you know, even well-intentioned folks on the outside will say, well, we are their voice and, you know, I'm speaking for them, but that's absolutely unnecessary. People mm -hmm. are incarcerated. They're not dead. They can still, right. you know, think and, and talk. And, sure. you know, there, there's plenty of ways, um, you know, we have to be creative. We have to organize around the bureaucratic and punitive prison system. Um, but it's, you know, 1000% possible to tap in with folks inside and, you know, Definitely. learn from their experiences and develop our legislation and develop our demands around what the folks inside are saying are the top priorities. What was the biggest obstacle for you in getting all of this started? Oh, there, I mean, so this is something that I always joke around and say, I never wanted to run a nonprofit. Mm. It's not fun. It's not sexy. I don't enjoy fundraising. I hate grant writing. I hate um, you know, all of the, the bureaucratic things that come with it. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's kind of unfortunate that the best way to do this work is within this kind of like nonprofit industrial complex where, you know, it's, there's just like so many obstacles that are in the, the way at times, you know, when you want to uh, fight for the radical change that you want. Um, but, you know, some other challenges were, you know, of course, around navigating the prison system, um, mail would go missing that we were sending to our inside organizers. And, you know, sometimes we would hear from folks saying that, um, you know, their, their property or organizing materials were taken away. Um, but a way that we were able to get around that for the most part was we also, um, developed a professional relationship with, um, CDCR headquarters in Sacramento so that when those issues did arise, we were able to take it straight to the administration and say, Hey, this is happening here. Um, yeah. You know, initiate justice is not doing anything to violate any rules. We're not doing anything to threaten any safety. Um, so, you know, can y'all help us with this? And, you know, for the most part, the advocacy um, through that avenue was successful. Um, but, you know, and, and then sometimes we still face challenges from opposition where they don't, you know, believe in the, the validity and the sure. experiences of directly impacted people. But that's just a narrative that we got to keep fighting against. I asked that question because I remember one of the biggest obstacles in organizing on the inside. And initially it was getting guys to believe that change was possible. Right. And, and I think that's a reflection upon like uh, the, the sense of despair for many people who are incarcerated. Like, you know, this is just how it is. You know, nothing's ever going to change. Right. Who are we? How could our voice ever matter? 
And, right. and, and, you know, just to, to mirror what, what Rich said, we have an abundance of gratitude for you for helping us while we were inside yeah. uh, to get our voice back. I got to admit a uh, uh, guilt on one of those. We were having a meeting. I don't know if Jason was the one organizing, but I believe he was there. And we were doing a survey for Initiate Justice and talking about some of the things that we would want on next the next year's, next year's ballot. And one of them, and it was a lightweight competition between prisons, too, because remember, right. they're like the best idea is what we're going to move forward with. Right. And it was yeah. like us against San Quentin. And, yeah. You know, we definitely didn't want them to win. <laughs> <laughs> but in the re in reality we all would have won but right. we all are winning right and we'll talk about that right now but the one of the ideas that came out and i remember uh, you know it was that let's fight for those on uh, on parole to vote for the for the right for those on parole to vote i'm like why are we wasting our time with that the <laughs> it'll vote, never happen right yeah, it'll never happen the voters <laughs> are not gonna not gonna vote for that i mean they're right. gonna laugh us out of there that's one of those things like you know, ending the three strikes laws, like it takes so much to do, requires a two thirds vote. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, it was like, um, there's a verse in the Bible where this guy says, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Mm. And I had unbelief at the time. I got mm. out last year, March 20th, um, uh, 2009, uh, 2019, last year, March 20th. And, and, um, you, you, we, we, we I called you on day two and, and, called you and your loved one on day two. We had a great conversation. 10 days later, we're in the Capitol advocating for um, a, a bill for um, uh, AB 965 for time credits for youthful offenders. And about 100 days later, 90 days later, you asked if I'd be willing to, to share at a press conference for another bill called ACA 6. Right. And would you be willing to share what ACA 6 was, what's happened since then, how unprecedented it was for it to go on to pass and now what it is today? Sure. Well, first of all, let me say um, I had my fair share of naysayers on the outside, too. Right. I had plenty of funders and, you know, people at other organizations, even people who I was like, dang, I thought y'all were my friends. Telling <laughs> me, hey, you know, like, what are you doing? You don't have the money for this. You don't know what you're doing. You're not going to be able to get to qualify a ballot initiative to restore voting rights. Um, fast forward a few years later. Here we are. We have Prop 17. Um, so um, ACA 6, which you mentioned, Richard, um, was a, an assembly constitutional amendment, which means it was um, something that went through the legislature to place an initiative on the statewide ballot um, that will restore voting rights to people on parole. So um, if I could back up a little bit, initially in like 2017, um, I had heard from one of our inside organizers at San Quentin, um, who's now on our board of directors. His name is Rasan Thomas. And he had called me one day and said, you know, if Initiate Justice really cares about activating the political power of people impacted by incarceration, step one, we need the right to vote. Um, so we tried to collect signatures to get something on the ballot in 2018 that would have restored voting rights to people in prison and people on parole. Um, we were still very new and underfunded and everybody doubted us at the time. So we, um, we collected 25,000 signatures, which was great, um, but we did not get the full amount of signatures that we needed to qualify for the ballot. However, we did get the attention of the legislature. Um, in particular, Assemblymember Kevin McCarty, who also represents the Sacramento area, um, reached out and said, I'm willing to um, author a constitutional amendment to place something on the ballot. Um, but, you know, let's take it one step at a time and just um, focus on people on parole. So ACA 6 was introduced in January of 2019. And, um, you know, we co-created a, a coalition of many organizations such as ACLU, League of Women Voters, 
Anti-Recidivism Coalition, Californians United for a Responsible Budget, you know, so many organizations. Um, the Secretary of State of California is also a co-sponsor of the bill. Um, everybody came together behind this idea and we mobilized um, people in prison. We mobilized, you know, folks like you, Richard, who had just come home to, you know, share their stories about, you know, being on parole and why it's important to have the right to vote. And we fought for 18 months to get the two-thirds vote that we needed in both the Assembly and the Senate. Um, we scraped by with bipartisan support in both houses. And in June, um, ACA 6 passed the legislature and became Prop 17. So now um, every voter in the state of California will have the opportunity to vote November 3rd. Um, yes, on Prop 17, which will uh, restore voting rights for people on parole in the state of California. And then California will become the 20th state that automatically restores voting rights after incarceration. Right on. You know, for, for me, I, I've never been able to, I'm 42 years old now, and I've never voted once my whole life. You know, I was incarcerated all my 20s, all my 30s, never had a chance to vote. There's an old there's an old line that comes to mind, and I, I think you have it on your website as well. No taxation without representation. Right. And I feel like I, I did uh, nearly 21 years in there. I feel like I served my time. I'm a citizen of this country. I came out. I paid taxes. It's been going on 17 months now. I work hard. I, I volunteer in the community. I speak at recovery groups at churches, and and I feel like I'm living life as a as a returning citizen should. And to still continue the punishment of not being able to vote doesn't doesn't seem right. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. It seems like some archaic, archaic bill to continue to oppress. I remember going back in there on, on the discussion with, with you and initiate justice and on behalf of crop. And I remember one of the assembly members saying, no, you're not being, you're not done being punished. You need another three years or five years or seven years to continue the punishment. And you know, it, it's tough enough to, to get an apartment or to get a credit card or to get a bank account. And that's just an, another thing, you know, to uh, another, another right that, that they want to take because they continue to think that you need to continue to be punished. And if he knew what it was like to live for six months in there, much less one week, I don't think he would be saying that. That's my personal opinion. No, I agree with that. And um, I also think that, you know, it's, it's very sad that your story, Richard, is not unique. There are so many people who have never had the, the right to vote because they were incarcerated young and spent so much time inside. And then, you know, when, when folks get out, they have the potential for being on parole for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, it depends on, you know, what your underlying sentence was, but there are thousands of people who come out every year who are on life parole and, you know, could potentially lose their right to vote forever. Um, the United States is actually the only democracy in the world where people can lose their right to vote forever because of a felony conviction. Um, so we're, you know, a real outlier and not in a good way. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with everything that you were saying, Richard, about, you know, you being home and being a taxpayer and a contributing member of society. Um, but I would even take it a step further and say, you know, folks who are in prison are also contributing members to society. Um, and one of the surveys that Initiate Justice did um, was our Democracy Needs Everyone survey, where we, you know, um, asked people in prison and on parole, like, if you could vote, would you? What policy priorities are important to you? Um, you know, what do you think we need to accomplish to achieve public safety? And, you know, also, like, what are you doing to contribute to your communities? And what we learned was that um, over 50% of people were in rehabilitative programs or um, mentoring others. 
over 60% of people were in school, over 70% of people were doing some kind of job or vocational training. Um, And then we also just got all of these like anecdotal stories about people in prison knitting blankets to donate to homeless shelters or, you know, translating books into Braille for blind people, you know, just like all of these ways that the folks inside are still part of their, you know, their communities within the the system, um, but also contributing members on the outside. So I think that it's really important for us to remember, again, that people in prison are still people, um, are still community members, even if, you know, the way that they're involved in the community looks a little bit different now. Um, But if you are, you know, a United States citizen over the age of 18, you should have your right to vote, period. What about people like me and Jason or people that we know, they want to get involved. We know that for something like this to get on TV, there maybe there'll be the ads coming up against it. We know there's a lot of money that's involved. How does a person sign up? What could they do? What could they do to be a part of Prop 17 passing? Yes. So please visit yeson17.vote. That's the official campaign website. And the first thing that people can do is donate to support our campaign. Um, This is a real grassroots effort. We don't have, you know, a ton of huge funders or donors or anything like that. Um, You know, this effort is led by people who are directly impacted, by people who are formerly incarcerated, and, you know, by a a bunch of like really dope allies who are, you know, leading a a really um, strong effort to restore voting rights. So I would encourage people again to visit um, yeson17.vote and donate to contribute. You got anything on that, Jay? Oh, well, I had some other questions, interesting stuff just on my mind right now. Um, So you're obviously a prolific leader in the social justice movement. And I have a a question. Um, So what are what are your thoughts about police, the police force and what needs to be improved with law enforcement? I feel the same way about police that I do about prisons, um, that we need to abolish the police. Um, Again, you know, police are also supposed to be a mechanism of, um, you know, uplifting and protecting public safety. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, often what we find is that more police does not equal public safety. You know, the the communities that are the safest are not the communities that have the most police. They're the communities that have the most resources. Mm. Um, You know, I think about growing up in Los Angeles, where um, the LA Unified School District is one of the few jurisdictions in the country that actually has its own police force. So LAUSD has a police department outside of LAPD or the LA Sheriff's Department. Um, And I think that that just goes to show you, you know, like how we are approaching, um, you know, caring for children. We have like police officers in preschools and kindergartens um, in Los Angeles, you know, arresting kids um, who like, you know, the handcuffs are too big to even um, fit them. Um, I got put in handcuffs at the age of 16 when I was in school for violating the dress code. Um, So I think that, you know, what we really need to be doing is like setting up mechanisms in place again, where we are actually just like addressing root causes and taking care of the community and setting people up to win um, by like, you know, really investing in what we need. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to another ballot measure here in Los Angeles County. Um, which right now is being referred to as um, the Reimagine LA ballot measure um, that will divert 10% of um, our county's discretionary fund to alternatives to incarceration and affordable housing 
which you know are, are two huge areas of concern here in, in Los Angeles. Um, and there's also a stipulation in that ballot measure saying that those funds um, cannot be used for law enforcement. Um, and I think that it's important that this is like a really um, key first step for us to start shifting resources away from, you know, just the police and guns and violence and arresting people out of a problem. Because that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. <laughs> sure. It hasn't worked. And I think right. that, you know, we're, you know, maybe if you think about it, you know, just off top, like, oh, yeah, if someone, you know, does something bad, there should be someone with a gun who can enforce a law and, mm-hmm. you know, put them in a cage so that we can all be safe. But what we've learned is that it's not working. Right. Um, we and, don't, they don't, you know, and they don't need tanks to do that. They don't. Or RVs and fully automatic weapons. So, yeah. No, so many of our communities look like war zones. Mm-hmm. And who are they at war against? Right. <laughs> like, are they supposed to be protecting us? Exactly. We're community members too, right? <laughs> That's what's up. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me that just the whole militarization has just gone out of control. I mean, it's, it, you know, it may have started out with, well, let's get this. And now it's like a military unto itself. Right. So, um yeah, that's that's the conversation about defunding the police. And I think that, the, you know, on both sides of the fence, that on the one hand, those who believe in defunding the police, I would love for them to to really spell out sort of like you did earlier for abolitionism. Here's what here's what we believe. Here's 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 our definition. Here's what we believe. Here's a you know four point or ten point plan over this amount of time. Obviously, it doesn't it doesn't mean end all police forces right now. Right. It's you not know, that simple. Yeah, it's not right. that simple. And that's sure. that's how some people try to frame it. And, you know, they use a straw man argument to tear it down. Right. Like, oh, right. They, they mean do this. And, and, and I hate and I don't agree with that. Well, that's not what they're saying. So let's listen and get both people in the room and start listening to each other. And maybe, you know, when I when I share with somebody the other day what some of your ideas were on abolitionism, when they found out I was going to interview you. And, and he's like, oh, I don't agree with her. By the time I explain most of what you said, he goes, oh, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Because <laughs> we sure. believe the same thing. So, so, and that goes to another question. Like when, when we're using language like this, Tiana, do you believe that we have some responsibility to be clear about what people are getting? Or, or like part of what I thought was when I first heard it was even though it may seem a little bit unrealistic to say abolish prisons right now, like the shock value would encourage people to like maybe meet halfway and say, okay, well, we definitely need to do something different than what we've been doing. Is that the rationale in using such um, strong language? I would say yes and no, that it is the responsibility of advocates to, to spell these things out. Like, of course, if there's something that we are pushing for, you know, we should be um, well-informed and, you know, be using, you know, data and, and research to, you know, inform the, the policies that we are advocating for. However, I will also add that I believe that it's incumbent upon the system to invest resources in research. Um, you know, we have all of the resources to fund the police and to fund prisons and, you know, for policymakers to, you know, sit in their chairs and say, well, we don't really know what else is going to work. So let's keep going with, you know, what is clearly failing. Sure. I think that we need to have um, some pilot projects where we are, you know, trying new things in different um, regions and those are you know fully funded by the government. Um, there's a bill moving through the legislature now, introduced by Assemblymember Comlogger um, called the Crises Act, um, AB 2054, which would um, create a funding mechanism to pilot um, restorative justice and alternatives to police programs in a few jurisdictions in California. Um, and even here in LA County, we through the the county we have 
an alternative to incarceration work group um, that's funded by the county where we have researchers, data analysts, um, and, you know, community members and advocates who put together a solid report of how we can close down jails in um, in Los Angeles County and what alternatives to incarceration we need to be investing in. So I say, you know, yes, it's on the advocates, but it's also on the state and the powers that be to give us the, the tools that we need um, and the resources to be able to tap into that radical imagination. Awesome. Taina, we're, we're, we're coming to an end of the hour. We know you're a very busy woman and have a, have a lot of things on your plate, but I would like to ask, um, are there any for the family members uh, and friends of the incarcerated listening, are there any bills, you know, I think COVID has kind of uh, separated us, many of us for being on in the know on what the latest bills are for 2020, 2021, what could they look out for? How could, you know, how, how are laws being done right now with, with, in the state of COVID, anything you could share on that? Right. Well, due to COVID, unfortunately, many pieces of legislation, including um, two of the ones Initiate Justice was co-sponsoring, um, ended up getting dropped by the legislature. However, for 2020, I do encourage folks to um, vote yes on Prop 17. Um, register to vote. You can visit the California Secretary of State's website to make sure that you're registered to vote. Um, if you have moved, you can go on the Secretary of State's website to change your address, um, check your voter registration status, do all of that. Um, because of COVID, all of the, um, the election is going to be a, a vote by mail election. So make sure that you're doing everything in your power to make sure that your voter registration information is accurate and up to date and that you get your ballot in the mail. And to be clear, you can vote even if you have a felony conviction, as long as you're not on parole. So people on probation can vote, people on um, post-release community supervision can vote, people who have old felonies who are no longer on parole can vote. The only people who cannot vote because of a felony conviction in California are people who are currently on parole right now. So as long as you are not on parole right now, make sure that you are registered to vote. Um, and vote-by-mail ballots are going to be going out October 5th. So you know, turn it in early, make sure it gets counted. Um, and, and next year, Initiate Justice does plan to introduce legislation on the three um, steps to abolition that I addressed earlier, which are around ending extreme sentencing, increasing access to programming and credits, and improving connections between incarcerated people and their loved ones. And um, if you want to be involved in Initiate Justice, you can sign up um, as a member on the outside, or you can sign up your incarcerated loved one um, to receive our newsletter. Um, just visit initiatejustice.org and click our um, Take Action button, and you can sign up yourself or um, your loved one for our membership. Excellent. Excellent. I actually have one of your, one of your T-shirts here. Hey. How did you get that T-shirt, Rich? <laughs> oh. I can see it. That's because you and I are in the Institute, the Institute of, of <laughs> we're in the Institute of Impact yeah. Leaders. Yep. Every <laughs> every Tuesday. Every Tuesday night. <laughs> and you can only miss two. Um, but um uh would you talk about Institute of Impacted Leaders real quick and how people can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the ways that we build the power of directly impacted people is by um, a 12-week organizing and advocacy training program that we have called the Institute of Impacted Leaders. Um, so this is for formerly incarcerated folks and people with incarcerated loved ones to learn um, the basics of community organizing, statewide legislative advocacy, and how to legally and safely fight for your rights, both in and out of prison. Um, so we 
gather cohorts based on region um, and, you know, work through the the 12-week program. So last year, um, we graduated two cohorts of folks in Los Angeles and one in Oakland. Um, And this year, you know, of course, due to COVID, we've had to transition online. Um, So now it's actually... Um, called the Zoom Institute of Impacted Leaders. We're doing everything on Zoom, um, but we're running a cohort in Sacramento, which you know the two of you are a part of and love seeing you every week, um, and a cohort in the Inland Empire. Um, our next Zoom Institutes will be launching um, in early 2021, so keep an eye out um, on for um, the applications on the Initiate Justice website and on all of our social media platforms. So we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, just at Initiate Justice. Um, And if you are someone who is either formerly incarcerated or has an incarcerated loved one um, or both, um, you know, I hope that you will sign up. Um, The regions that we're hoping to move to next year are um, Central California, come back to Los Angeles, and then maybe move to other areas such as like San Diego, Central Coast, Orange County, um, But yeah, I mean, do y'all have anything that you want to share about the Institute as ongoing participants? Well, I'll I'll say that it's um, incredibly enlightening. Um, There are things that I was completely unaware of um, in regards to the rights that I have and and how to advocate in an effective manner. Um, So it's very informative, very interesting. It's facilitated incredibly well. And I'm not just saying that because you're our our guest today. (laughs) (laughs) You do a great job facilitating and your co-facilitators as well. Um, but it's, yeah. it's definitely, uh, worth the investment of time. It's definitely, I'm, 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 I'm zoomed out and it's, it's, it, but it's the best thing I've been on, on zoom, the most clear. And I never realized how difficult it was to get a, a law. Um, first of all, even, even to be looked at second, secondly, to be passed. And so thank you for your work. Thank you for your efforts. Thank you for joining us on the, on the, on the prison post today. It's been a great conversation with you. Um, I, you know, we definitely want to welcome you back some, uh, at another time for future laws and different policy conversations. Taina, thank you so much. Post COVID, we want cupcakes. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been right. a real joy to join the two of you today. All right. Thank okay. you, Taina. Take care. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the prison post, a production of the crop organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.